we have a guest with us today, uh, Glenn Ennis. Will you please uh, unmute yourself and say hi to us? Hi. Friends, I, it is just an absolute delight to introduce you, Emmanuel, to uh, Glenn. Glenn, if, if, uh, if we were physically gathered together, I'd say something like, Emmanuel, meet Glenn, and Glenn, meet Emmanuel, and I'd make you like say hi to each other in an awkward way. Um, but it's, it's hard for everybody to say hi to you, so you can be awkward <laughs> towards us. Sounds, that, that, that works. Friends, Glenn and I, Glenn, did we meet the first day of seminary? Is that yeah, what happened? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're like old seminary buddies. Yeah. Um, and uh, emphasis on the old, Glenn, uh, you are. But no, sorry, um, right, right there behind you, I guess. Um, uh, Glenn is a pastor in Edinburgh. Actually, uh, the, what, what, what's the specific neighborhood that you're in, Glenn? Uh, we're in a neighborhood called Portobello, which is Edinburgh's beachfront. So, beachfront, yeah. Portobello Beach. Yeah. Fantastic. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Portobello and tell us a little bit about Edinburgh and your ministry there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Hi, everyone. It's awesome to be here. Can you understand me? <laughs> it is English, I promise. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we, we, we're here in Edinburgh. Um, Portobello is um, a really interesting part of Edinburgh. It's uh, on the on the beachfront. It was traditionally not a, a particularly well-off area in the city, um, but it has been gentrified over the last twenty years, um, which may be good or bad. We're not really sure yet, but. Um, it is an amazing place to live. It's filled with artists and uh, people who work for the government and people who work in the financial district. And so it's a bizarre amalgamation of people, which is just a wonderful place to do ministry. It's a difficult place to do ministry. Um, most people, uh, we less than 2% of the population would attend church. Uh, and most of those 98% would have a pretty negative view of the church. So it's a tough place to do ministry but the nice thing is because they don't like the church we try to talk about Jesus a lot more than we talk about the church and that seems to be a bit more positively received so we're excited about that Edinburgh as many of you will know is the capital city of Scotland we have castles and all sorts of stuff uh, we've been here for quite a long time uh, and uh, the ch our church Portobello Baptist Church has been around for about 120 years and uh, we've been in our building right on the high street for the last hundred years so yeah that's a little bit about where we are that is fantastic. And um, uh, Glenn and Karen and uh, their daughter Zoe have, uh, have come around, Emmanuel, visited us before and visited New York City. Um, and it's great to have you with us uh, to preach today. Glenn, let me ask you one, one of the things, I already said this earlier, but one of the things about the church is the church is, um, is a team, a local congregation is a team, and then the little local congregations uh, team with other churches uh, for the mission of the Lord. And so we'd love to hear, um, what is something that you see God doing, either in uh, your local community or in Scotland? What do you see God doing? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess... You know, in, in, in Portobello, one of the really interesting things, we've got four churches. We have uh, Church of Scotland, which is kind of Presbyterian. We have um, a, a, an Episcopal church, which is, I guess, is you guys, uh, kind of tribe. And then uh, we have a Catholic church and us who are the Baptist church. And um, we do loads of stuff together. So we run a big children's holiday program. Not this year, but uh, most years we run a big children's holiday program. 
Uh, we actually swapped pulpits two years ago. So everybody preached in everyone else's pulpit. So we had the Catholic guy preaching in the Baptist church and stuff like that, which is just a tremendous witness to our local community, which is great. In terms of in our nation, you know, it's really difficult to talk about this time as ever anything positive about it. But one of the things that we've seen is the church is really at the heart of so many communities around our nation where people have been struggling and they've, they've been in need. It's the church that stepped in to meet that need. And it's been incredible to see across dozens, hundreds of communities around our nation that that's been true. And the other really exciting thing is it's provoked us to think well about why and how we do church. Are we doing it just to keep a small group of people happy? Or are we deeply committed to seeing the mission of God extended across our nation? And that's an exciting conversation to be a part of. The, the changes that might be required, that, that might be a bit more challenging, but, uh, but we're in a good spot with that just now. So, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. For I should that. also say, I heard, I heard last night that um, there are two churches that are, we're friends with, one of whom have seen a hundred people come to know the Lord in the last few months through doing church online. I, I, it's, it's like remarkable, unbelievable, but just amazing. So we give God thanks for that. So, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Glenn, how can we, uh, how, how, how can we pray for you and for uh, the mission of the church? Oh, um, well, I get, I, I get, pray that we, that we continue to build the kinds of relationships that we're building personally in Portobello. We've only been here uh, just less than two years and um we're just getting to a place where we're getting to know people and being able to earn the right to have those kind of Jesus conversations that we want to have. So if you could pray for that, that would be great. And then for the church, you know, the church has been there a long time, um, but we need to change. The world is not what it was. Uh, well, the world's not what it was 12 months ago, but never mind sort of 20 or 30 years ago. So we need to update a whole load of things and um, for the purpose of mission. And uh, if you could pray for that, that would be that would be awesome. Well, let's pray now. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, for Glenn and Karen and Zoe. We thank you for their ministry there in um, in Portobello. Um, Father, we thank you for what you're doing in. Uh, the church in that nation and in that community. We thank you uh, that people have come to know you in the midst of an um, extremely difficult uh, and, and season, a season of suffering. But Father, we know, um, just as we've already prayed, that you are, um, your providence sets in order things that are otherwise in disorder. And so, Father, we ask for your sovereign power uh, to work in and through uh, Portobello Baptist Church, that people who right now don't know you and don't want anything to do with you would be drawn to know you. And Father, we ask for a deepening and strengthening, strengthening of the unity between the churches in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that that witness might be uh, extended and that that, might wit that witness may uh, accurately reflect uh, your beauty, Lord Jesus. And we ask that uh, you would renew and change the church in ways that please you. Continue to grow your ministry there. We thank you uh, that you are not uh, 
just the God of a particular locality or a particular nation, that you are the Lord of us all. And we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Fantastic. Friends, let's uh, read the Bible together. Uh, Spencer, would you read uh, Revelation to us? Our first reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I cancel you to buy, buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be jealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Glenn, invite you to come and uh, open the word for us. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, what, a, what a delight to do this. I mean, it, it's weird. Uh, I, I just, I don't really have another word for it, but um, to be sitting here in Edinburgh in my living room and preaching with some folks uh, in New York City, but from what I see in the chat, actually all over uh, the United States, which is uh, remarkable. So we get to gather today as people committed to Jesus. And um, I, I want to share with you from that passage in Revelation today. And I, I think Jesus has something to say to us, something to teach us this day. We have, I think, two things that preaching always does. One is that we're trying to see Jesus more clearly. And the book of Revelation, that's really all the book of Revelation is about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that's always about seeing Jesus more clearly. We might want to look at other things in there, but uh, the goal of it is to see Jesus more clearly. But the other thing I think preaching is always about, if it's first about seeing Jesus more clearly, then it's secondly about seeing ourselves more clearly. Who are we? What's our life like? What light is being shone on us by the text? Look, this has been a tumultuous time, a, a terrible time, uh, around the world and perhaps especially for you folks in New York City and we have been praying for you um, as you have gone through just really tough tough times and perhaps are still going through that and the words of the gospel reading that we just heard from Matthew I am sure are bam to your soul at the moment the invitation from Jesus to come to him and find your rest in him it's just, oh, does anyone need that rest today? Like one or two of you perhaps nodding your head there that, yes, I would like that. Well, these words in Revelation, I hope, will minister to you in a similar way. Now, I need you to stick with me because 
we're going to go through some tough bits before we get to that offer. In fact, Jesus is throwing some elbows in the middle of this passage. And, and I need you to stick with me as we go through that and discover that there's a beautiful invitation at the end that has something of the same tone as we read in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we get to our text this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about this passage, this section of Revelation, just to put this in a little bit of context. This is the final one of seven letters that Jesus writes to his churches in Asia Minor. They are recorded by the Apostle John and they're dictated by Jesus, which is why in many Bibles you'll discover that they're actually in red, uh, red ink because somehow that makes them more holy. They're marked out as Jesus' words. The second thing is that the, their form is particular and peculiar. It's not just um, a regular way of writing. In fact, many scholars think that these... Um, letters are actually modeled after royal edicts issued by the Roman emperor and Jesus is undermining the cult of the empire just by the way that these letters are written and these messages as much as they're undermining the power of Rome at the time they're also encouragements and challenges to a church living in persecution suffering for being known as belonging to Jesus and then the final thing I want to say about this is they were written to real churches in real places in a real time. These are not just letters that kind of float about unhinged to history and to geography and to the reality of life, but they were written to very specific circumstances. Laodicea that we're reading about today was a real place. And I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to tell you about Laodicea because I think it helps us when we turn to the text. So if all this technology works, I am going to share a couple of slides with you. Here we go. That looks like it's working. Okay, so Laodicea is in western Turkey today. Well, it's not actually there. It's destroyed. There are, there are ruins there that are actually a world heritage site uh, in western Turkey that you can go to see, and apparently they're quite spectacular. Um, but that is where it exists in the modern world, uh, western Turkey. However, when we go back to the uh, first century, this is where we would have found Laodicea, same place, but in uh, Asia Minor. And you can see some names there that you might be familiar with if you know the New Testament at all. We've got Ephesus over there. We've got Colossae. And if you'd read the other letters in Revelation, you'd find Smyrna and Philadelphia and Sardis there also. The geographic situation matters. You can see that Laodicea is close together with two other cities, Hierapolis, about six miles to the north, and Colossae, about 10 miles to the east. Now, those, um, both Hierapolis and Colossae had one thing in particular that set them apart from Laodicea, which is that they had a profound water source. Now, they, they were very different. Hierap and Colossae, they had these beautiful, cool springs that they had. Uh, it was a, a incredibly refreshing, cool water that came up from the ground. In Hierapolis, they had hot springs. And as they rolled down and cascaded down the mountainside, they created these pools. And they, so we had hot spring pools in Hierapolis that were supposed to be have healing properties. Colossae called Hierapolis hot. Remember that, it's going to become unhelpful uh, later on. But what was the social situation, the cultural situation? What was Laodicea itself like? 
Well, it was famous for three things. It was famous for banking, for fashion, and for medicine. It was a profoundly wealthy city. If you look on this map, you can see that all the roads go through Laodicea. And so it became an, a, a real hub for trade and for commerce. As a result, it became hugely wealthy and built up a big banking sector that used to send lots and lots of gold to, um, uh, to Jerusalem uh, as part of the Jewish community from there would do that. But here, here's the fascinating thing that in about 30 years before our, ex our letter is written, the, the city of Laodicea was flattened by an earthquake and it had become a significant city in the Roman Empire and the Romans offered to rebuild it for them. And the Laodiceans said, no, 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 we're good. We'll pay for it ourselves. This was a strong and independent uh, city. They were also known for their trade in a, a black wool. They were really the only place in the world that did this. And so this black wool was their kind of fashion statement, if you like. This was what they became known for. And then finally, the other big thing that they had was a medical school. And at that medical school, they had invented a salve for the eyes that healed uh, blindness of some sort. I'm not, it's not entirely clear what kind of blindness it was healing. But those are the three things that Laodicea was known for in the ancient world. So geographically, we've got Herapolis to the north with the hot springs, Colossae to the east with the cool springs, and then in terms of its cultural setup, famous for banking, for fashion, and for medicine. Now, I've managed to avoid the temptation to say, man, Laodicea is a bit like New York City, isn't it? But it, I'm not going there. You want to go there yourself, I'll leave you to it, but I'm not going there today. That is who Laodicea is, an independent, wealthy, fashionable, self-reliant city. Remember all that. We'll come back to it. Let's now turn to our text, though. That's all the background. That's all lovely. But what's Jesus saying? Well, the first thing we discover in these kinds of letters is that Jesus reveals himself at the beginning of each of the letters in a particular way. And in this one, he describes himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, I don't know about you, but those words don't bubble up out of me and make me go, oh, that's great. I don't really know what they mean, to be honest. So let's just dig in for just a minute or two. Who is this Jesus that's writing this letter? Amen. Now, in most evangelical setups I've been in, amen is kind of a holy punctuation mark. It means, I, I'm, I'm finished now, someone else can pray. Or, I'm done, we can eat. It's, that, it's become that. But in the Hebrew mindset, it was something much more profound than that. To say amen was to say something was utterly trustworthy, that we could hold on to it as being true. It's the first thing. The faithful and true witness. A perfect representation of God. That's who this Jesus is, a perfect representation of God. And when we read it with the Amen, we're being told that Jesus is an utterly trustworthy replica of God. Because, of course, he is God. It's like when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It is the most remarkable thing that actually, not, not, that, Jesus looked, not that Jesus looked a little like God, 
but that God himself looks like Jesus. If we're ever confused about what God is like, we look to Jesus, this faithful and true witness, this perfect replica of who Jesus is and then of who God is. And then we see this as the beginning of God's creation. Now, that seemed a little odd to me. I, I didn't really understand what that meant. But it means that the Greek word that's used there is the word arche, which can mean source, the, the, the root of. So in that sense, it's the beginning of, for example, a river coming from a spring. Not just linear that it's the beginning, but actually that it's the source of that river, that it's the ongoing replenishment of that river. Colossians chapter 1 has one of my favorite verses in it. It's this Christ hymn that we find in Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Does that sound a little bit, just a little bit, like what I'm trying to say this, amen, faithful and true witness, arche, beginning of God's creation, would sound like? Well, remember, Colossae, the, the recipients of the book of Colossians, is only six miles up the road. It's not far. And actually, at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul, when he writes it, says, make sure this letter is read to the church in Laodicea. So I think if you were a, a Christian in the church in Laodicea, you knew this language. It was familiar to you. You were being reminded of the beauty of Jesus and the power of the one who is the source of all creation. This is the one who writes the rest of the letter. This is the context, the one who speaks all the other words that are about to come. I need to change my page. My wife was changing my pages and she turned the wrong one. Bless her. Anyway, I've just blamed her. I'm now in so much trouble. Anyway, there we go. So what does this faithful, true witness have to say to us? Well, to begin with, he says to the Laodiceans, you must be cold or hot. Now remember our water sources from Herapolis and from Colossae? We've got warm and we've got cold. And what he's not saying, and I think this passage has been misunderstood as sometimes, is I, I wish you were either spiritually hot, fervent, or rather than dead. But that's not what he's saying. We need to listen carefully. He's saying you can be hot or cold. What is not okay is to be lukewarm in the middle. And you see that the, the the Laodiceans, they knew about lukewarm because the hot springs from Herapolis flowed down to Laodicea, but they'd cooled down by then and they were compromised and lukewarm and just vile sulfur-filled water. And the hot, the cool springs of Colossae were put into aqueducts and pipes and brought along to, to Laodicea. And by the time they got there, they were lukewarm. The Laodiceans were familiar physically with the idea of lukewarmness. 
Jesus is saying they have become spiritually exactly the same way. And his consequences, he will spit them out. This is where Jesus is throwing elbows. He is, he is not happy. There's a violence to this here. It says lukewarm is not acceptable. He rejects the notion that his followers can be lukewarm. Now, right now, this doesn't sound like a very comforting message. So I'm asking you to hang in with me for a minute, right? Because here comes the question, what is it that made them lukewarm? How did they get into that circumstance? Well, they say it, Jesus says it clearly. You, you say you have need of nothing. They are independent. Do, do you remember the rebuilding of the city? They, 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 they were so self-reliant that they'd rejected everything that Rome wanted them to do and said, we will do it ourselves. That might well be a great way to run a city. It might be great for a city to be independent and self-reliant and strong. But those things should never be the defining factors of the church of Jesus Christ. We've got to be humble, reliant on Jesus. We've got to be the opposite of the things that they have become. And it is this that has meant that they have become lukewarm. And so Jesus points out the condition that they've ended up in. He says, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see the things he's going after here? You are poor. The response to which is, no, we're really not. We're actually incredibly wealthy. Jesus says, you're blind. And they're like, oh, we don't do blindness here. We got a salve for our eyes. We're, we're good with that one. He said, you're naked. Oh, no, no, Jesus, you don't understand. We've got this beautiful black cloth that we make all sorts of things out of. Jesus is undermining everything that they put their trust in and saying, you are poor, blind, and naked. Now, if Jesus' letter ended there, it would be pretty bad news. Spat out, rejected, point out all their brokenness and, and uh, sin. But it doesn't end there because we get this fabulous little line which says this. Verse 18. I counsel you. And at this point, everything changes because you see, it shows that Jesus is not done with his church in Laodicea. That no matter how lukewarm they've become, he still has a plan for them. He still has advice for them. He still has counsel for them and he offers them what they cannot provide for themselves see he's just told them that they are poor and he offers them gold refined by fire so that you may be rich so what does that look like and I, i've been wondering on that all week what does that actually look like and the best example i can come up with is this do you think Mother Teresa lived a life well described as rich? And I have to say, yes. Yes, I think she did. And so the richness that Jesus is offering is a full, abundant life that is not concerned with the things of this world, but of something quite radically different. 
And then, but he's not finished there. He's, he's now, to, he's told them that they are naked. And now he's offering them white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. This is profound. Um, I, I, I love that Jesus wants to deal with our shame. As a pastor, I think maybe one of the biggest things I see people holding people back in their lives is shame. And, and there should be a sense for Christians that we can leave that behind, that shame should be dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross by Jesus. And so many of us are crippled and burdened by shame. And it's painful to watch people like that. We all know people in those circumstances. But the great news is Jesus wants to deal with it. And, and I know, and I'm sure most of you do too, have seen people who've been like that, who Jesus gets a hold of and does a radical transformative work in their life and clothes them in white garments, not the black garments of the world, not the black garments of, of Laodicea and the fashionable ones, but white garments, spotless and pure. I, we, we, we ministered with a lady about 15 years ago now who had just suffered some terrible abuse and she'd done remarkably well to get to a place in her life where she was functioning and uh, was, you know, living a, a really great life, but she was fundamentally burdened by the shame of what had been done to her. And Jesus came along and, and her words were, she, he clothed me in white garments that she was completely transformed. And that, that woman has been utterly transformed by Jesus because he clothed her and covered her shame. She had to do the work. It, it wasn't just a simple snap of the fingers and it was all done. She had to do the work, but she did. It, Jesus did a remarkable thing. Finally, salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Oh, I love this. Jesus is just, he's not even messing about now. He's going after the salve that they've put their trust in. The lost one beginning to see reality in a way that no optician could ever make. I, I got saved when I was 20 years old. The world looked nothing different the day, nothing the same the day after I got saved than the day before. Everything changed. For those of us who got saved in life, I, I, I bet you can testify to that, right? Everything looks different. There's a sense in which Jesus has transformed the way we see the world. And he wants to continue to do that. That's what he's saying here to this church. These are, these are Christians he's writing to. And he's saying, I want to let you see in a, way, in a new way. Jesus goes on. He wants to make sure that they understand that his discipline is not arbitrary or harsh, but it's done with a heart of love and care. And he invites us to respond in two ways. The first is that we're to be zealous. This is the antidote to lukewarm. This is about being passionate for Jesus, for his kingdom, and for its purposes. Now, that will mean that we become passionate about all sorts of other things as well, but they will be secondary to our passion for Jesus. And then the most important word, I think, in this entire section is really Jesus saying to us, repent. Because if we find ourselves in a place where we're lukewarm, if we find ourselves in a place where we feel like Jesus is saying, I'm going to spit you out, 
What, what is the solution? What's to be done? And Jesus says, repent. And here, here, here's something I want to say about repentance. Repentance isn't simply about saying sorry for the consequences of your sin. I mean, that's fine to do, but that's not repentance. We've got to repent of the sin itself. So in this context, it's of repenting of our self-reliance, of the Laodicean self-reliance, of being willing to lay that down. But most importantly, repentance isn't just words we speak. It's actions we take. It's a turning around of our lives. It's choosing a new path, new habits, a new defining story that begin to reorient who we are all around Jesus. See, Jesus is calling us to a passionate obedience and to repentance. Those are the things he's asking us to do. They seem quite simple. They're very painful to do, as I'm sure many of you know. And then we come, we come to the final section, which is the bit where I want to finish. How did they get in this state? How did they end up in the way that they are? Well, we have this wonderful passage at the end of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. We have the famous Holman Hunt painting that's in St. Paul's Cathedral that someone said to him, uh, you've made a mistake, there's no handle on the outside of the door, to which he replied, it can only be opened from the inside. And Billy Graham often used this passage as a famous call to non-believers to say, come to Jesus, open the door of your heart and he will come into you. And that's brilliant. And listen, if you're on this call today and you, you don't know Jesus, you've never given your life to Jesus, I promise you, he's knocking at the door of your life and he's saying to you right now, will you open the door and let me come into you? Will you give your life to me? That, that is an invitation I promise you Jesus is making to you today if you are not uh, a, a believer. So Give your life to him right now and then email one of the people who invited you here or Jim or whatever and just say, yeah, I'm in. Uh, can you tell me how to live this out? And they'd be delighted to help you with that. But I've got some bad news for Billy Graham. This passage wasn't written about non-believers. This passage was written to the church. How did we get here? Jesus on the outside of the church. Man, we have to be careful, right? And I, I think people in leadership in the church in particular, we have to be so careful that we don't end up being so co-opted by the world around us that we end up doing church in a way that it wouldn't matter if Jesus showed up or not. It will just carry on anyway. We need to be trusting that we need, we need to be trusting Jesus to make all of this work. And I know you guys at, at Emmanuel are exactly that. That you could be going to some great big church somewhere else in the city, but you're committed to this and to serving your city in the ways that God has called you. So bless you for that, but lean into that and keep going. But to the one who hears Jesus at the door, if anyone hears him and opens the door, we get this beautiful part. I, I love this. I love this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love to eat. I love to cook too. And the one thing I'm loving about this Zoom thing is I'm not sure anyone can tell just how much weight I put on during lockdown here, which is, uh, which is pretty nice. Um, but I love to eat. I love to cook. 
this notion of hospitality though is is profound and if you notice what jesus does here he says i will come in to to him and eat with him in other words jesus comes as a guest and sits at the table but he then says and he with me and so turns it around and jesus becomes the host and the person who's invited him in becomes a guest and if we had time and we don't because i think i'm already over time uh we we would um we would go through the gospels and discover that jesus does that all the time that in in the, in the gospels he turns up somewhere as a guest and then begins acting as a host and in middle eastern hospitality being the host is to say to someone i am going to share all i have with you i will give you protection i will give you food i will give you everything that you need and jesus is saying i will do that for you it's a covenant to share all that he has with you and there's something about intimacy at this table too uh, there's a hint of song of songs uh, in this passage where he says uh, that in song of songs chapter five it says the voice of my beloved he knocks at the door open to me my beloved there's a restoration of intimacy that jesus is wanting here because he knows that passion that's that's derived from anything else other than a relation an intimate relationship with jesus will ultimately fizzle and die so here's where i want to finish i want to invite all of you to dinner once all this pandemic craziness is over and uh, we're back to something whatever is on the other side and some of you decide you want to travel when you come to scotland which is the most beautiful country in the world i want you to come and have dinner with us okay contact jim jim will put you in contact with us and i want you to come and have dinner and we will have good food we'll have good wine and because it's scotland we'll also have some whiskey okay that's that's the invitation but here's the thing we might turn up at a table but our focus is not the food that we eat or the wine that we drink actually what we're going to see is that we will share stories we will laugh together we will begin to find places where we have both visited we will discover we've got people in common and you will come to my table as a stranger and you will get up and walk away as a friend and this is what jesus has done here because the Laodiceans had made themselves strangers of Jesus by their desire to be self-reliant. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am knocking at the door. Open it. I will come in and eat with you. I will give you everything I am. I will host you at this table. And you then will be restored. And we will have this relationship. So what's the point of all of this? I want you to hear maybe two things. You are beloved by God. That in your, no matter where you are just now, you are beloved of God. He comes to your table. You are welcomed at his table. And as you experience his love in you, you need to cultivate that love and that zealousness that comes from that, that you may live a life that is no longer lukewarm, but that is passionate about Jesus and his kingdom. And I'll finish there. May the Lord bless you all by knowing the love of Jesus this week. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. 
If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.